got together and we delimited the funga, F-U-N-G-A, as the valid term to refer to fungal diversity of a given place. So we would talk about the fauna of Chile, the flora of Chile, and the funga of Chile. Animalia, plantae, and fungi. Welcome back to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, and today we have a magical topic to investigate, mushrooms. Well, to be fair, mushrooms belong to an enormous and some would say vastly undervalued kingdom, that of fungi. One fungal compound that is undergoing a massive resurgence of interest is psilocybin, which has been part of religious rituals for thousands of years. In 1957, Albert Hoffman, a Swiss chemist working for Sandoz, the pharmaceutical company, isolated psilocybin from a mushroom and unleashed all sorts of interesting discoveries. During the 60s, Sandoz sold psilocybin and LSD for research in medical trials, but the substance was soon outlawed after that, as it became associated with Timothy Leary and the 60s counterculture movement. Well, fortunately, psilocybin has been making a steady comeback within the medical community. Respected institutions like Johns Hopkins have conducted clinical trials since 2000, showing remarkable success in treating patients with severe depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Well, time to introduce our two wonderful experts today. We have Juliana Ferci, who's Chile's foremost field mycologist, and she's been studying fungi since 1999. Ferci founded the Fungi Foundation in 2012, which is the first NGO in the world working solely for the protection and promotion of fungi. We're also delighted to be joined by Dr. Sharman Ghaznavi, a psychiatrist and associate director of the Center for the Neuroscience of Psychedelics at Mass General Hospital in Boston. Welcome to you both, Juliana in Chile and Dr. Ghaznavi in Boston. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, John. Okay, so let's start with you, Juliana. We should begin at the beginning. You were a young biology student in Chile when you had your lightning bolt moment. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I was actually studying aquaculture, which is a bit further removed um, from, from mycology. But yes, I was walking through a forest looking for foxes when I saw a mushroom that really I wanted to know who, who that mushroom was. And there were no books to um, know the name or know what the mushroom was doing in, in, um, in nature. So that's actually the moment I sort of felt that that was what I was here to do, that I had to do something about that. And that it was my um, job to produce that information and make it available for, for people in the country. No small task. No small task. No small task. <laughs> and you said that in the interview I read that in, you said you'd already tried psilocybin, the magic mushroom before this. Is that correct? Oh, yes. I had um, had experiences with psilocybin many years before that encounter. But do you remember anything about that first? Well, yes, I, I had many experiences in England, in Chile and other places, um, never really looking at, at, at psilocybin as a compound that was fully recreational. I actually would consume the whole mushroom, not just psilocybin. So psilocybe, the mushrooms from this genus psilocybe, specifically psilocybe cubensis. And they've always been very transformative experiences. 
Um, I don't actually remember the first time. I remember the, the common denominator in many times that I've worked with um, with psilocybe is just a very profoundly spiritual feeling of connectedness and of belonging and of well-being uh, and of just determination for what I what I do to work for these organisms. So it's quite interesting that you refer to them uh, as who, as people almost, as your friends. Why do you treat them with such respect and why do you believe they're so important to us uh, historically and in the present moment? Well, independent of my belief, they are fundamental and important to our existence. Without fungi, fungi or fungi, you can say anyway, um, they're all correct, just for everybody to know. Um, without them, plants can't even live outside of water. You know, herbivores can't digest the plants they eat. Um, you know, yeasts are a fungi, molds, lichens, mushrooms, conchs, and millions of microscopic organisms. They're a whole kingdom I don't use kingdom, otherwise I'd prefer to use queendom, queendom. but there are a whole kingdom of life um, that are completely different um, based on type of cell and ways of uh, obtaining energy to plants and animals. Now, a lot of people talk about their dogs or, you know, uh, cats or even their beautiful orchids as with pronouns, right, and, and treat them as they are individual beings and beings that have have systems of appreciating their surroundings and fungi are no different. They are organisms that do, uh, do perceive their surroundings. They live inside their food um, and they um, allow for life to be as we know it on earth. So they, as much as I believe or don't believe, they are organisms that deserve huge respect and that are responsible for shaping the world as it is today. So that's quite interesting because quite till quite recently, fungi were misclassified as plants um, as part of Carl Linnaeus division of plants and animals. So you were quite instrumental in actually establishing fungi as a separate classification. Flora, fauna, fungi has now become an international standard, which has been a lot to do with your work on the topic. Tell me why they have such specific and special qualities. So the, the, the organisms, the kingdom of the fungi were separated very um, certainly from plants and animals in 1969. And I didn't have anything to do with that. Um, I wasn't even born when that happened, to be honest. And we know from molecular studies that fungi are more closely related to animals than to plants. Now, what we did through the Fungi Foundation was delimit a term that could help humanity refer to fungal diversity on earth as not just plants and animals. So everywhere in legislation, in, in, in policy re regarding education, conservation and others, we refer to macroscopic life on earth as just fauna and flora, as if there were no other large organisms. And in 2018, with colleagues from Brazil, Argentina and the US, we got together and we um, delimited the third F, funga, F-U-N-G-A, as the valid term to refer to fungal diversity of a given place. So we would talk about the fauna of Chile, the flora of Chile, and the funga of Chile. And those are organisms that pertain to three different kingdoms of life, animalia, plantae, and fungi. So that has really been a topic that I've spearheaded because language creates reality. And in political terms, uh, in language really mandates where attention is, 
where funding sources are destined to and where priorities are for conservation, for education and for research. And so when you look at terms of reference for research in many places around the world still, um, you'll see that there are huge amounts of funding allocated to research uh, plants and animals and fungi are explicitly excluded from that because they are neither plants nor animals. So, so that's been the quest. I think lots of people's interest was piqued by that wonderful documentary that was just riveting, Fantastic Fungi. Yeah. And which made you so aware of being in this kind of environment that was inhabited by all this energy and life around you that was invisible, but that was very, very integral to everything going on, you know, the breakdown of uh, detritus and, and creating organic compost. And it, it was kind of startling. And the amount of communication that went on. Yes, um, I think I think the film Avatar did went a long way as well. It has to be said, you know, uh, Avatar was really the first time that people were, you know, shown about this interconnectedness that is based on the mycelial networks. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't explicit to name the, you know, the fungi as the organisms that were doing that. But but it's incredible because when people saw a fantastic fungi or fantastic fungi, they would say, "Oh, it's like Avatar," you know. <laughs> When people hear about mother trees, oh, it's like Avatar. So, so I think yeah, it's important to recognize that that, that really did, Avatar did pave the way. I think for, for people to Good. understand. Good. Yeah. So um, most people know about fungal applications in like brewing, making bread, creating penicillin. They're the most obvious ways that we've probably come into contact with. But they have other amazing properties. They are the master decomposers, the garbage disposal agents for the mm -hmm. natural world. They've also been having used for tests for immunological effects against breast cancer, smallpox. They've been used as microfilters to uh, filter contaminated water and also as anti-inflammatory. So it seems that there's a, a mushroom for every single thing, a fungi for every single need that we might have in the world. And Paul Stamets is always banging on about this, that he's going to save the world with them. So uh, do you think that's an over-exaggeration um, or do you think they are integral to many, many applications? It doesn't really matter what I think or what Paul thinks, you know, my dear friend Paul, these are facts. And what we see is that the nature-based solutions that the kingdom of the fungi hold are astonishing. And, you know, anybody who uses a detergent to clean their clothes in cold water should be thanking fungal enzymes that are responsible for uh, for that to happen it's statins to lower cholesterol all come from fungi you know the medicine responsible for organ transplant to be to be successful come from fungi i mean we could go on and on and on and on decomposing a series of of nauseous chemicals or, or compounds that are out in nature so independent of what anybody may think what we know is that um, fungi are responsible for shaping the planet, for feeding us. So, you know, humanity was developed and was able to develop in many areas of the world, thanks, thanks to sterilizing liquid through fermentation or preserving food through fermentation. You can't ferment without yeast and yeast are fungi, you know, for clothing, for materials. And as I said before, Plants can't live outside of water without fungi on or in their roots. We wouldn't have a terrestrial ecosystem without them. So, so I think it's important for people to understand that there, these are facts of science and not, you know, fanatical statements. 
And historically, how, how far back do we have evidence of them being involved with maybe humans or before humans? Well, what's the historical? Although, I mean, there, there's no uh, separation of the development of humanity to fungi. As I, as I mentioned before, you know, animals that eat plants aren't readily able to or capable of breaking down the cellulose cell wall, for example, of plants they eat. So if every time you know a herbivore is eating, you know, grass or lettuce or you know tougher plants, it's the fungi in our gut that are decomposing that cellulose cell wall. So they're really responsible for us to be able to eat what we eat. You know, um, they are responsible for plants to be able to produce uh, the gases that we depend on to breathe. There's no uh, one or other that came first in evolutionary terms. The fungi evolved together with plants to create land, and we are just one of many land organisms uh, on Earth, and we depend 100% on their uh, ecological function. We, we aren't separate. What's kind of remarkable, just as a layperson, is that they have diversified into so many different complicated species there's five million apparently of them oh at least but there are also millions and millions of plants and of animals and of other uh, microorganisms I mean fungi are very different from plants and from animals and from bacteria but they share that they are this huge classification of life that uh, holds together millions of organisms so um, you know it's about changing the way you think so when we look at, for example, uh, two types of fungi, we can think people know morels, delicious spring morels, and people know button mushrooms that you're buying or oyster mushrooms that you're buying, you know, in the supermarket or cultivating. Now, a morel mushroom and an oyster mushroom are as closely related as an elephant and a flea. Now, both elephants and fleas are animals, right? But they're not closely related. And a morel and a, an oyster mushroom, they're both fungi, but they are not closely related. They are part of the same kingdom of life, but they are very different organisms. Mm. So people aren't surprised when, you know, uh, we're talking about animals and you, you very easily separate birds from mammals, you know, from fish and, and we could go on. In the fungi, it's exactly the same. These are huge groups that are very different um, biologically. But that are, we, we commonly refer to them all as just fungi without realizing that saying fungi is like saying animals. But that's how big the kingdom is. Mm. Well, time to introduce Dr. Sharman Ghaznavi a psychiatrist and associate director of the Center for the Neuroscience of Psychedelics at Mass General Hospital in Boston. One aspect of psilocybin is this idea of its effect on consciousness. And there's been some amazing studies published about uh, long-lasting effects of having this kind of sacred or life-changing experience, even amongst atheist non-believers like Poland who said he described this sort of transcendental state that was on a par with falling in love or having a child or any of those remarkable things. So in terms of altering brain chemistry, you're, um, I guess, extremely well-qualified psychiatrist, and you come from a very rigorous, rather conservative medical background in terms of treatment of your patients. So what made you take a second look at psilocybin? 
So first, I think um, saying that I come from a conservative background may not be wholly accurate in the sense that of the medical specialties, psychiatrists are perhaps the most open to learning about all different aspects of human experience. And we can sit with uncertainty in a way that some of our colleagues struggle with, and we can sit with um, discomfort. And that includes the discomfort of not knowing or understanding everything. So, you know, really it was kind of serendipitous and kismet that um, I found myself doing research in psychedelics. I hadn't really thought about it. I knew that there was some work being done with terminal cancer patients. That said, I did know that a lot of my patients really struggled with who, what to make of who they are in the context of their illness, um, whether it was physical or psychiatric. And they would sort of get into these vicious cycles of ruminating about things that had gone, gone wrong in their lives or things that they had done wrong. And so it was from the context of suffering and looking for new ways to treat it. So, you know, our medications help a lot of people, but it doesn't help everyone, which means we have to keep our eyes open for other options to help folks. And, you know, when I heard about people's experiences, especially from clinical trials, the fact that a single dose led to remission, you know, I felt like we needed to take a look. We owed this to patients to really explore this in a rigorous way and make it available so that history doesn't repeat itself and we don't get another, you know, three or four decades where we don't learn about psychedelics. So tell me about where you've reached so far. You've been fairly instrumental in, in helping this center come together at Mass General. And I think you said your first trials are hopefully going to be in August. So tell me just a little bit about that procedure of how you, you have to get the drug in, and I guess it's manufactured synthetically, and you have to have a controlled environment, you have to do you know, MRIs, you've got to have two people there with the person going through the experience. Could you just give us a little idea, if someone was doing it, what, what would they go through? So first, in terms of doing research, because psilocybin and other psychedelic compounds are Schedule One. It means that there are more regulatory hurdles to go through to be able to use the substances for research. So schedule one means that they don't have a identified use, that there is potential for abuse or dependence, and they can only be used in the context of a research study. And there are, very, there are you know, a number of different psilocybin compounds out there. We're using a synthetic psilocybin produced by Compass Pathways called the Comp360. And you know, part of that is because there's good safety data and it's gone through um, phase one and phase two trials. So we know we're not putting patients at any increased risk. Um, so there are the regulatory hurdles. And then there's just the hurdles of, you know, sort of setting up the first psychedelics study at a, at a place like Harvard, where you have to go through any number of committees and meetings, because <laughs> everybody wants to make sure we're doing right by patients. It's all well-intentioned. And so we are weeks away from beginning. We're just waiting for drug to arrive. And this first study um, is not a clinical trial so much as a uh, neuroimaging study to basically look at some of one aspect of this transcendental experience, which is how people report that their sense of self changes in the midst of the experience and that they feel uh, a sort of ego dissolution. So we're actually going to be scanning people, the fo folks, the day of their administration so that we can see what's going on in the brain and networks that are involved in how we process information about ourselves? Is there a clue to some of this? And can we understand it a little better? And can it help this clinical phenomenon where patients are, especially patients with depression, are really focused on 
themselves and all the things that they did wrong. In terms of the actual treatment, protocols differ, but for the most part, it's really psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So patients are prepared insofar as they can be, especially if they've never had the experience, but prepared to, to recognize that lots of things may come up for them, some pleasant, some not, and they're not necessarily correlated with you know, the response to the drug, meaning they could have very horrific, not necessarily a bad trip, but they could have bad memories come up and so on. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't respond in a positive way. So preparing patients, um, sort of getting them to understand what's involved and to be able to tolerate the distress in the situation, because there can be distressing moments during the therapy. And then most of the therapy does involve having two therapists present. And it can last for psilocybin at six to eight hours. Really, the role of the therapist there is to just help them tolerate it. Most patients will go inside sort of uh, with psilocybin and, and sort of reflect, but there can be moments where the therapist needs to interact and just help the patient through the experience so as to not have to use additional medications or what have you, but rather working on breathing or imagery techniques. And then there are sessions afterwards to sort of help the patient as they make meaning out of the experience that they had, which is sometimes you know, referred to as integration. And so it's really letting the person make meaning of the experience and then understanding their world after this experience. Okay, this is interesting because you've got two things coming together with my next question and the question that just came in. So someone called, has said, given the glacial movement towards legislation and research, what do you think of Citizen Practitioner's Guide to helping others access the psychedelic experience with a proper setting? I was about to say, you know, is this ever going to be something that you get on prescription to self-administer? So in terms of um, citizens practicing medicine, I don't think that I can ever... Citizen Practitioner's Guide Guides Helping Others. Um, so, you know, if, you're, if we're talking about helping... Um, psychiatric patients through guides. I think, um, you know, I would be concerned if they don't have a certain degree of training, because the reality is that these, these compounds are powerful, which means they can be used for good and for bad. Um, and the reality is that people are in quite vulnerable states and there have been bad outcomes, not in clinical trials where it's controlled and there are, you know, trained therapists and in this, it's in a controlled environment. But we know from history that people don't always have good reactions. So, you know, the ethos that I live by is first do no harm. <laughs> so I can't advocate for citizens going out there and essentially practicing medicine in some way. I understand the frustration for sure. And I wish that the science would, and the medicine would, you know, medical knowledge would move faster. But I think given how powerful these compounds are, the ways in which they've been used for both good and bad, and the fact that people can have quite adverse and strong reactions, as far as patients are concerned or for a medical indication, you know, I can't suggest that despite the frustrations with how slow the, the, the progress is towards medicalization, that um, citizens take it upon themselves. Can, can I just, um, Mary, just add on to that? I think, that, I think that it's important to acknowledge a few things that are very different between a traditional ceremony with um, psilocybe and a modern therapy session with psilocybin. First of all, there are more compounds in the mushroom than just psilocybin. And because of, and, and the reason that 
the the research is being done only with psilocybin isn't because uh, psychiatrists don't believe that the whole you know suit of of compounds in the mushroom isn't good. It's because there has to be some sort of standardized you know measurement, and and there are a lot of limitations. Um, but the other thing is, I think that one of the there are two words for me that are missing two very important words associated to psilocybin, to psilocybin and to therapy, you know, in that setting. And one is sacred and the other one is mystical because what happens with these compounds, with these organisms is that the setting is very important. The setting, the, the trust in the compound or the, or the mushroom or, you know, or the plant or the animal, um, whichever is really, really important. You're connecting to a greater force of nature. You're connecting with the force of nature and the experience is never the same really for different people. And it's a mystical experience that is very different for everybody. So, so I think, you know, it's important from my point of view and, and, you know, the fact that this is discussed at Davos um, is basically to me talking about the economic side of what's happening. I mean, cannabis was discussed at Davos too, you know, and it wasn't because people were just realizing how, you know, therapeutic cannabis was. It's because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of money involved with these new, you know, medicines, um, new, new, I'm going to quote new, because they're not new, they're very old. But, you know, what the, 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 the sacredness of what you're doing is very important. And that, and that's, I, I think what I liked hearing uh, Dr. Gasnavi is that you said, you know, one experience, one experience can really transform your whole life. And it's not because the compound in itself can do it. It's because of a, of a mystical experience um, in, a, in hopefully a sacred connection and in a safe space will, will lead you to do that. You know, these mushrooms grow in fields all over the world. They are cosmopolitan. You know, people have been using them for a long time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that one experience can really change your life. And when we're talking about therapeutic use, we're talking about use in to, to, to address a very serious psychiatric condition. And it's not the same as somebody who doesn't have that psychiatric condition. Mm, that's a good that. point. Mm. It's not the same. It could be, it can be, dangerous for that person to you know it, with with a serious psychiatric condition to consume substances even to consume cannabis right mm. um in 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 a, in a wrong setting or or you know with wrong people or without that mystical or sacred connection it's a very good point actually it's not for it's not to talk to god you know, and, and the Masatex, who are the, uh, the, the the people who have used and from where we know of the use of psilocybe, do not use psilocybe to talk to God. They use psilocybe when somebody's ill, when there's a problem or when something is lost. And I know I, I work very closely with Masatec communities, uh, not because the foundation works with psychedelics, but because we have a, a family relationship. And in, and they're very clear, we do not eat the mushrooms to talk to God. It's to cure something when there's a problem. Interesting. Very interesting. So they knew that. Old wisdom. You know, there's something about the healing that takes place when two humans connect and work together. And it sort of heals a lot of wounds that people walk around with. And it's one of the things that I'm interested in. I think that that's fascinating, trying to understand that. Because I, work, I sit with suffering a lot of the days. And even when people are not in, an, in a mood episode or not symptomatic, 
they're struggling with disconnection from people in their lives. It is a, you know, shadow. It's, it's, it's a close companion of psychiatric illness. And, and really our society is struggling with that right now, right? And I think trying to understand that could be really transformative. You're listening to Much Ado About Mushrooms with Juliana Furchi, mycologist and founder of the Fungi Foundation, which is the first NGO in the world working solely for the protection and promotion of fungi. And Dr. Sharmin Ghaznavi, psychiatrist and associate director of the Center for the Neuroscience of Psychedelics. Thank you both very much. Thank Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dr. Ghaznavi. Thank you. Thank Thank you, you. So Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, Mass Cultural Council, the Cambridge Community Foundation, and of course you. So if you want to donate or sign up to our list, please visit the website, cambridgeforum.org. Thank you all for joining us and I hope to see you all soon.